high particle. Oh, you forgot the rules. Interactive church. High particle. You know, every time we say hi, you're actually saying hi to everybody online this morning. So give them a big shout. In the room, let everybody hear that you're in the room with us. Go ahead. That's fantastic. We actually have people right now that are uh, working as our online chat hosts. So they're actually in conversation with people that are watching. And big welcome to you that are online right now. Great to have you here. And we monitor down front and try to provide that online campus experience. And so the interaction is a great way for us to stay connected. Those of you online, we want to welcome you here today. We're in a series called Tough Questions, Interrogating the Christian Faith. And last week I kicked it all off. And uh, we started by talking about, you know, is truth, is the truth, the biblical Christian truth that we, we hold so tightly to, you know, can it be defended and how do we know it's truth? And so we started to explore the big tough questions that people are going to have. We're going to dive in and do that today. So I need the usher's help this morning. If you need to borrow a Bible, raise your hand real high. And uh, as you hold your hand up, if you're in the room, the ushers are coming through. Those in the chapel, we have uh, Bibles available for you over in the video cafe as well. And if you're listening online, get an electronic Bible, get a hard copy out. You can also download our app. If you want to download the app, that way you can actually click on the link there, get the Bible, the notes, tra- uh, take your notes, and keep a copy of them for afterwards. This series is a great series for you to be able to do that. All right, everybody set to go? Yeah, thanks, John. There's two of us. We're ready to go. All right, here we go. Let's kick into this. How many of you know what this is? Wow, after Christmas, everybody's going, I haven't seen one of those for a long time. What is that thing? All right, up on the screen, there's a picture of it. This is a $50 bill. Now, we had to put specimen on the side screen so the tech people didn't print that off, try to cash that this week. But uh, $50 bill. So why do I hold that up? You know, the thing about traveling is... uh, you take your currency, particularly now in Canada, when we travel, we have to exchange our currency normally to the country we travel to. Sometimes it's into U.S. currency, sometimes in, into the currency of the country that you go into. One of the big questions that you get, I'll go to the bank and I'll ask and they'll go, what kind of bills do you want? And I'll say, typically I try to keep them smaller, but occasionally I'll take a few bigger bills. And then when I travel and I go to cash those bills in, they'll immediately take those bills and they'll start to mark them or check them. What are they doing? They're looking to see if they're authentic, if they're a credible bill. Now, there's a little moment that takes place as soon as they start to do that. You know, we actually see people here in Canada, a lot of our tellers, when you pull a 50 out, and now they're getting down to the 20s, they're starting to check those as well. But when they pull out their little indicators, I get a little bit worried because I'm going, I got a bunch of those bills with me, and if you're about to tell me that they're not credible, they're not authentic, there's a couple of problems I've got right away. I mean, first... I lose the value of that money. It's gone. So somehow I lost out and I end up with a counterfeit bill. The second thing is I lose the ability to purchase, the power of the purchase with the, cur- the currency. So if it was a $20 bill, I lose the power of the 20 If it was 50 I lose the power of the 50 Does it make sense? There's something else fundamentally that happens. I lose my faith in the currency. So now I begin to question the currency that I'm traveling with. Can I trust this currency is it credible? Why do I raise that? See, that's a fundamental question when it comes to Christianity. And for you know, seekers and skeptics, and even for some believers, one of the baseline questions that they have, you know, you Christians are pretty normal people, right? You're, you're normal. Anyway, see, there's seven of you. That's good to have you with us today. But we're, we're pretty normal for the most part. We're normal, you know, and we come to church and we sing and we teach and we serve and we have a lot of fun and it's all good. And, and if you meet us, everybody would go, yeah, they seem to be really normal people. They do normal activities. But here's the deal. 
and this is huge, a skeptic looks at us and they'll go, I'm okay with you, but I'm not sure I trust the Bible. How can I trust? You base your whole life on God's Word. So you say the Bible's your sole authority, the Bible's how you live out your life, the Bible leads you into truth and knowledge of God. So they go, I like you, I like how you live, I like hanging out with you, and I'm not sure I can buy into that. And so this base question that comes out of this is, can the Bible be trusted? Now the truth of the matter is, for a lot of people, not just skeptics and seekers, there's even for a lot of believers, this is one of those questions that they want to ask but they're not quite sure how to get across. And they go, well, I think maybe parts of the Bible are true. I'm not sure the whole Bible is true. So here's the question we want to wrestle with, and it's going to be our tough question today. Can the Bible be trusted? Can the Bible be trusted? Well, we've got the answer, but I'm going, to, I'm going to take it a little bit deeper now. You know, so how do we know the Bible can be trusted? Is there historical evidence? Is there factual support? Is there anything that can validate the credibility of the Scripture. So if you've got a Bible, we handed it to you this morning. You've got a blue-covered Bible. If you brought your own Bible, which I hope you do if you're part of our church community, if you have an electronic one like I'm using this morning, how do you know that you can trust the Bible? What kind of credibility can you pull into play? And how do you answer people who are on a journey of faith and who look at you and you try to share your faith if you're a believer and you go, you can trust God. So our worship team stands here and our God will never fail you. And they go, how do I know that? How can I know that it's credible? So we're going to have a look at this, and we want to dive down and get real deep with this. We're going to wrestle with it. Now, let me say something at the outset. If you're here, and you're on the journey of faith, and maybe you're at the far end of the spectrum, and you're a skeptic, and you're not even sure you want to buy in, we're so glad you're with us. We want you to bring your questions. We want you to be here. And if you're a believer, and you've never wrestled this one down, I want you to do this. Now, I cannot possibly cover everything I'd like to cover on a Sunday morning. You know that. We would be here for a little while. So I'm going to encourage you this week, get into our growth groups. If you're part of a growth group, a small group, get in your small groups. You're going to have a lot more material for you. If you've never been a part of one, this series is the perfect series to come on Wednesday night. We're going to have what we call our small group experience at the church, growth group experience. You can sit in for the teaching. You can get into conversation. We're going to dive deeper. So I'm going to take you up to about 30,000 feet, let you fall. And then we'll see where you land after that, all right? Here we go. So get your Bible out, get your notes out. We're going to have a look at this. So can the Bible be trusted? Is there credible evidence that we can have? Do you have doubts? Well, let me tell you, if you've got questions, you're in good company. You're in really good company. Because one of Jesus' closest followers, in fact, he hand-selected him. Thomas had his own doubts and questions. So we're going to go into the Thomas story to help us understand a little bit of the teaching that I want to give to you today. Now let me give you the background because some may not know the whole story of Thomas. Thomas is one of the 12 chosen by Jesus. He was one of the ones that was with Jesus during the rest, the trial, the crucifixion, and he knew it was over. He was one of the ones that in the days following the crucifixion, they were extremely terrified because here's what they knew. They were trying to, you know, eradicate this Jesus movement, if they could get rid of Jesus, they could maybe stop. The religious leaders wanted this thing stopped. And Thomas and the other 12 understood something, that if you take the leader out, take out the chain of command, and the whole movement's done. So if you get Jesus and you get his 12 closest followers, 
then you can actually stifle this entire thing and shut it right down. And so one of the 12 had already committed suicide. Eleven are left. They're terrified. They're hiding. They're behind closed doors. They are not appearing because as far as they know, their leader is dead, and they're probably on the most wanted list right now. So here you have in this moment, this most unusual circumstance begins to take place. Well, these courageous Jesus followers are hiding behind closed doors and protecting their lives. Rumors and whispers are beginning, particularly coming out of the ladies from the community, and they're going, hey, we've seen Jesus. And these guys go, no, you haven't. Then they talk about seeing angels, supernatural beings, and this just creates more confusion and more mystery because they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death. They saw him buried. Now for Thomas, he's hearing reports from these individuals. In his mind, he's got to be thinking, these people are struggling and suffering from PTSD. They actually claim to have seen a dead man walking. And I'm one of his 12. And do you not think if he was alive, I would know? So Thomas has this wrestle point where he goes, I'm not prepared to buy into this. He's got his doubts. I'm going to read a verse for you. I want you just to listen, and then we're going to go to a text. John chapter 20, this is where John records the episode between Jesus and Thomas. Here's what it says. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to the disciples, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now we read that, and if you're a follower of Jesus, we kind of skim right over that because we know the rest of the story. But Thomas was staking his future on his need for affirmation and credibility. He's going, I hung out with this man. I betrayed. I was one of the ones that watched and let him go. I didn't defend him. And he goes, and now you're asking me to buy into these fictitious rumors that he's alive? He goes, no way. He goes, if I can't put my hand in his side, if I can't take my fingers and touch torn flesh, you're not going to convince me because there's been all kinds of episodes this past couple of days. And I am not about to be trapped by the Romans or by the Jewish religious authorities. So he just tells his buddies. And remember now, these are his friends. This would be like me hanging out with my pastor friends, like talking to Pastor Jeff and Pastor Dan, and they tell me, hey, you know, we saw Jesus alive. And I'm going, uh-uh, you guys are stressed out. I was there. I saw this. So he says, unless I see it. So all these doubts come into play. So why do we go to Thomas' story? Because here was an eyewitness, a firsthand relationship, who goes, I got my own doubts. And if Thomas could be satisfied, and he was there, then maybe we can be satisfied as well. So take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 20. We're going to drop down to verse 26, and let's have a look at what takes place in Thomas's world. Verse 26, follow along as I read. So it was about a week later that the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas this time was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And so Thomas Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas saw Jesus resurrected. He reached out and he touched him. 
He was able to interact with him. And in that moment, that immediate explanation comes from him. He goes, my Lord and my God. So you have this wonderful moment where credibility comes into play. But what about us? What about us? We don't have the opportunity to step into a room and take our fingers and place them into the side. We don't have opportunity to take our hands and rub them across the hands, the nail wounds. How do we verify? How do we bank our future when even Thomas was struggling with that? So John, when he recorded this episode, did something, and I want you to see it. And if if you're used to underlining in your Bible, you're taking notes, I want you to just sort of make a notation right here. John, in this text, wrote these words. These things are written that you may believe. These things are written. So here's what John does. He's reminding us what you're reading is not a legend, a folklore, a tale, or a myth. Rather, what you have when you pick up the Scriptures and you begin to survey the Scriptures, the Bible, the Bible is documented, carefully preserved, eyewitness accounts that are credible, factual, and applicable. And John goes, by reading these, you can understand there's a connection where you can have confidence in what you're reading, and they can change the course of your destiny. So let me give you three reasons why the Bible can be trusted. Get your notes out. Let's fill in a few blanks together this morning. Number one, the Bible is historically credible. The Bible is historically credible. When you pick up a copy of the Bible or you open up your electronic version of the Bible, for a lot of people, that question, that doubt that they have, you know, is, can I trust this right here? Like, can I, can I really, really trust this? Is this simply a book that belongs to this covert, small, mysterious group of mystics that claim that their leader had been raised from the dead? And for a lot of people, particularly those who have really hard, sincere questions about Christian faith, They go, if you believe the Bible to be true, should I trust this? Or is this just some ancient collection of myths? Now, it's interesting. We often underestimate the size and the potential that's represented by the Bible. Did you know how many people are actually staking their lives and their futures on the claim of the Scriptures today? This is out of the Washington Post. Ishan Toror is a reporter for the Washington Post. In April of 2015, just last year, he did a survey. He looked at the numbers statistically worldwide. There are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. 2.2 billion people pick up or have access to or listen or sit under the teaching of the Scriptures and go, I believe this. I believe this. And so often when it comes to people asking us, you know, can the Bible be trusted? We, we feel like we're on the defense. We're like we're the only one. Well, I think it can. You know, I'm one of the guys that believes it. So we have this little bit of an awkward moment. You don't have to feel awkward about it at all. If you're a believer, you're part of a community of 2.2 billion people who go, I'm willing to stake my entire future on this thing. That is unbelievable, friends. We are like a little grain of salt out of a salt shaker when we get together on a Sunday morning like this. When you think of the global perspective of the people who have aligned themselves and you go, why would 2.2 billion people do this if they didn't believe that the Bible could be trusted? So when you're talking about can the Scriptures be trusted, this gives us great confidence because of the historical credibility. Now add into this, think about it. Did you know that the Bible continues to be on the world's best sellers list. It's the number one. When, when you go to the Guinness Book of Records and they record all this, they track the numbers, statistics, it's the number one best-selling book, that it is the most widely distributed book and that there are over 5 billion copies 
of the Bible that are out there in distribution. You might think it's worthy of being trusted with that many copies that are out there. It's been translated into 349 languages. Portions of the Bible have been translated into over 2,000 different language groups. So the Bible is this wonderful, wonderful, complex presentation of the truth of God's Word. Now, let's take it a little bit farther. So some of you that are believers, you know, the question, can the Bible be trusted? Let's have a little bit of fun this morning. Did you know the Bible is not a solitary, one solitary book? The right answer is yes. Okay, good. Interactive. Okay, we're good. All right, it's not. The Bible is a collection of what? 66 books. So there are two primary volumes. We talk about the Old Testament being one volume. The New Testament is another volume. How many books are in the Old Testament, by the way, with no pastors answering this question? And no, you don't get the $50. 39. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Together, this compilation comes together to be called the Bible. Did you know, did you know that the Bible was written over a period of 2,000 years? Did you know that 40 different authors actually wrote the Bible? Did you understand that the compilation, when you bring all of those elements together, that the unity is the most comprehensive and powerful presentation, that there is no disagreement between the authors, and if you take the hardest subjects that they cover in the complexity of the Scriptures, you take all the different authors and you look anywhere in the Bible and you realize these people had the sense of unity. You go, how on earth is that possible? And you look at this historical credibility that comes with it. Let me just put it this way. If I were to take 40 people out of this room right now, or some from online and some from the chapel and some from the video cafe, and I gave you a number of topics and I sent you out to different locations and said, okay, write your thesis, bring it back together, and let's see if we agree. Impossible. We wouldn't. And yet you find all of these books, the compilation, you read it from cover to cover, and you cannot get away from the fact that there is absolute unity, that history ties into the biblical truth, and it's a wonderful portrayal. Why is it this way? Well, let me tell you, because I knew you were going to ask. Look at it says in your notes, 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul telling Timothy, he said, Timothy, let me remind you that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Don't miss that first statement. All Scripture is inspired by God. That God superintended the authors who would compose, who would write. They were shepherds. They were kings. They were military leaders. They served in palaces. They were in prisons. They were out in the field. They wrote from joy. They wrote from frustration. They wrote through love. They expressed anger. But in the middle of it all... They delivered through the inspiration and the supervision of God this flawless, powerful, truthful consistency that we bank our lives on. And it just never contradicts itself. Peter, Peter, a follower of Jesus, here's what Peter says. I'll put it in your notes there. Second Peter chapter 1. He said this, We have these prophetic messages as something that is completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, here it comes. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter reminds us through the inspiration of God. He goes, this historical credibility that we have in the Scriptures, God's hand was all over this. So when people say, can the Bible be trusted? And maybe as a believer you're wondering, absolutely, it can be trusted. Here, go back to your notes. Here's a second reason why you can trust the Bible. The Bible is factually reliable. It is factually reliable. 
One of the main barriers that people raise when it comes to the Bible, comes to the Scriptures, they go, you know, I'll give you maybe some of that is true, but a, a skeptic or somebody who's interrogating the Christian faith, they'll go, one of my big barriers to the faith is the perceived contradictions that are there. That some of the episodes that are recorded, there seems to be differences in the episodes. And so they go, how can this contradict this? And then you say you trust the Bible. How can you do that? That if somebody told you this over here and then somebody else said this over here and it's the same story and they don't match up, why would you say the Bible can be trusted? Where would you see the credibility? So the factual reliability of Scripture, here's what I want to show you. When you start to look at the Bible and you look at some of the inconsistencies, I'm going to go into the Gospels for a moment. So in the Gospels, if you're new, you go to the center of the Bible, hang a right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the four accounts called the Gospels. They're the records of the life and ministry of Jesus. So these authors were writing to tell us about Jesus. Here's where you will find some of these objections that are raised because they go, well, Matthew wrote this about this episode, and then you got Mark who said this, and these don't seem to match. So how is this possible? If there's these gaps or these inconsistencies, why would you say that the Bible is factually reliable? Well, let's look at it this way. How many of you have ever been in an accident or witnessed a car accident? You maybe want to confess to your spouse this morning. You raise your hand and just say, by the way, this weekend. If you've ever had the opportunity, I don't encourage you to go out and get an accident, but if you've ever had an opportunity to witness one, When the officers are investigating and the first on the scene begin to investigate, they always look for eyewitnesses to the accident. So they'll find the individuals who were there who saw the incident take place. And here's something that has been proved over and over and over. Every time you begin to interview the witnesses, their stories deviate. There's just a slight difference. Why is that? It's what's called selective attention. So when I saw the episode take place, if I was a witness and you were a witness, and it was Pastor Jeff, you know, that crashed his motorbike, because what's he doing riding a motorbike anyhow? So when we're watching him, if we were the witnesses, we would have different accounts of the same story. Are we wrong from each other? No. Because I would look at certain events, and I would remember certain events and details, and I would give those to the to the officer, you would have seen, there would be some things we'd see in common, other things that we would elaborate. Does it make our version of the story untrue? Not at all. But if you put the two of them together, you often get a fuller or a more complete picture of what the truth is. Are you tracking with me so far? So when you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if I just stay in the Gospels for now, and they give you different variations or versions of the accounts, then when you put their stories together, all of a sudden you go, oh... So Matthew was writing from this perspective. He saw this. This was his selective attention. And Mark was writing, or John was writing, or Luke was writing this way, and they saw this. So it's not that the episodes are contradictory. They're actually complementary. So some of you are looking at me going, "Ah, I don't know if I'm willing to buy in. So are you up for a little game this morning? A little challenge? Wow, you are just a hard, hard crowd. I know you are. You're up for something. All right, let's find out if selective attention is really an issue that we need to reconcile with, particularly if we, we realize it, then maybe we can bring it back into the Scriptures. Watch the side screens for a moment. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball.
The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion. Is that not incredible? Now, some of you have seen it before, and I had seen an earlier version of this. So when I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, this will be great. I'll play it so that we understand selective attention. And so when I, I was watching the selective attention, I was looking for a more updated version of it. I'm watching, I'm going, yeah, there goes the gorilla. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, I got that. And then he goes, did you see the curtain change in color? I go, what? And I had to go back and look at it again. I go, are you kidding me? And I even knew what I was watching for. And some of you, that, I think the baby got the 16 passes. That's why she was like, yay, I got 16, and I counted them all. But this is what happens, and here we are, a room full of people watching online in the other venues. We're all watching the exact same thing, and over half of us didn't even see a gorilla go through the situation. And so you put four writers of the Gospels together, and one of them writes about this because this is what they saw. One writes about this because this is what they saw. Does that make sense now? So suddenly you get the, the factual reliability of the Scripture becomes so much more powerful because you realize they were not Autobots, they were not robots, they were not simply cloning each other. They were writing. These were real people writing. They had their own personalities, temperaments, traits, their memories, and they write into the story, write into the context. And this is where it becomes so powerful. So the factual reliability, and then you would go, yes, but we're talking 2,000 years ago, Doug. At least, if you just want to go to the Gospels, how... Can I trust the reliability of the Scripture? Well, let's go back into your notes. I want to show you something. See, the, the Scripture account, the record of the Scriptures, were written, particularly if you take the Gospels, they were written right within the years following the life of Jesus. So I'm going to push out to the story. Let's go to Luke. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke's account. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, Luke wrote not only the Gospel record, but he wrote the book of Acts. So there's a, a lot of great information that comes out of these two books for us. But Luke, as a writer, he's a doctor, so this is a man who's given to detail and understanding, and obviously his own personal credibility is going to be on the line. He would write his account about 30 to 40 years after the events that take place in the life of Jesus. You go, why is that important to know? 30 to 40 years mean people are still around who saw the events. Make sense? So if he's writing, the people who are about to read his record, they're still there. So if what Luke writes and begins to distribute between the people of the church, and the church picks up and goes, oh, hey, there's a record of Jesus. If there was anything in the record that could be disputed, you now have eyewitness accounts. And not just followers of Jesus. You have religious leaders who are trying to get rid of the Jesus movement. You have the Roman-occupied forces that go, Caesar is God, not Jesus is God. So you've got all of these, what we would call, antagonistic forces that would be working against the church. And Luke puts himself at great harm's way by writing this account. Now look what he writes, Luke chapter 1, 1 to 4, it's in your notes. Luke says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. 
So he's talking about the other apostles and disciples because he wasn't one of the ones. Now move on. Just follow it a little bit further. He said, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, if you're writing in your notes, you're taking sidebar notes, you're writing in your Bible, you just want something to think about, here are a few things out of those four verses that I immediately looked at and I went, wow, look at the factual reliability. He says this, these were handed down from eyewitnesses. That means the information Luke is referring to is easily verifiable. All the things he's going to talk about, you can go ask because people have seen this. Then he goes, I personally carefully investigated. This is a doctor. He's putting his own name and reputation online. So now we're talking about information that's credible. Then he goes, and I put it together in an orderly account, factual making sure that all the details as he could possibly capture them would be included. Then he says this, this is for you, most excellent Theophilus. You go, well, what? Big deal. He's actually writing to give the information to an individual so that that individual could actually test and prove whether or not it's true. So he'd be able to certainly uh, verify the credibility. So now what you have is information that's accountable. And one last thing. Then he goes, I want you to be able to know the certainty of the things that you have been he goes, Theophilus, I want you to know that what you're reading is truthful. And all of this within 30 to 40 years of the life of Jesus so that this letter, this account, one of the many could be subject to any kind of scrutiny. And it passes the scrutiny test. Paul would write to the believers in Corinth who were removed from the circumstance. So they would be wondering about the veracity of the information. And he would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or 15, verse 6, he would write to them. And he goes, hey, I want you to know this after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that more than 500 saw him, many of whom are still alive. So Paul goes, and this is a guy that had initially been persecuting the believers, and now he has come to this experience of faith in Christ. And he goes... Over 500 have seen him. And if you want to check it out, come on down to Jerusalem and start asking questions because people are all over the place and can tell you about it. Then when he's defending himself, because he himself now, having been a follower of the way and a teacher of the way, following Jesus, he's now before the Roman officials, before uh, King Herod, and he has to defend himself before King Agrippa. And here's what he says in Acts 26, 26. He says to Agrippa, you are familiar with these things and I can speak freely to you. I am convinced that none of this has passed your notice because it was not done in a corner. In other words, he's saying to Agrippa, everything I'm telling you about Jesus, you already know it. You already know it. You're the public official. You're the one that rules over the land. You've seen it. You've heard it. You've heard it from your religious leaders. He goes, so there's nothing that I'm talking about that's done secretly, privately, in a back corner somewhere. This was all done in front of everybody. So here you have this factual reliability of the record of Scripture. So not only do you have its, you know, its historical authenticity, but now you have factual reliability. And it's just written in such a powerful way, way too early to become legend, folklore, or myth. It's powerful, verifiable, and we know that the Bible can be trusted. Well, let me give you one last thing this morning. Go to your notes. If we're going to talk about the Scriptures... We can build a case, and we can give all of the information, and there's loads of information available. But this is the one I want to leave with you this morning. Can the Bible be trusted? The Bible is personally applicable. It's personally applicable. 
that if you just set aside all the information, you set aside everything else we've talked about this morning, here's what the Bible tells us. Now, I'll go back to John. It says, John 20, 21, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is extremely important. What is the purpose of the Bible? The Bible was not to answer the question of the how and the when. And that's what everybody tries to make it do. Now, it does answer a lot of that. It gives a great deal of information and insight. But the purpose of the Bible was never to answer the how and the when. The purpose of the Bible was to answer the who and the why. So the Bible was written, what did John say? So that you may know Jesus the Messiah, and by believing in his name, you may have life. He said, I'm not writing so that you can have a detailed account from the time that Jesus was a boy all the way up to the time of the crucifixion, that you've got a complete chronological record of everything that he ever did, every restaurant, every samosa, you know, every... No. He goes, that's not why I did this. These things are written. And why were they written? The Holy Spirit superintended them. goes, this is what needs to be recorded. Record this, record this, record this, record this. Why? Because people are going to read this. It's going to speak to their heart. Their heart is going to feel the imprint of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is everywhere and they are divinely created. And they're going to know when the Holy Spirit begins to draw them in that the Bible is personally applicable. And you see that. What does the Word of God say? The Word of God is powerful and active. It's alive and active. That means every time you read the Bible. Last week I said, take the book of Mark. Pray, open it up, read six verses, ten verses, twelve verses. How many of you did your challenge? No, don't raise your hands. Uh, But if you do that, if you do that, the Bible gives its own guarantee. It is powerful. It's alive and active. God says, I'll back this up. I'll back this up. That's why we can stand up here and sing songs that are rooted in the Scriptures and raise our hands because we go, we don't have to make it up. We don't have to defend it. It's God's Word. God will defend it, and He'll prove Himself through His Word. So what does it say? Go back into your notes. Look what it says over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. Good verse. Can we tie it back for a moment? Thomas said to his own friends, unless I see, unless I touch, I will not believe. And Jesus said, Thomas, you've seen, you've touched. Good for you. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. And Hebrews tells us what great hope we have when our faith is trusted in Christ. And we have all of this evidence that holds it up. Look at it, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if you take the Bible merely as a textbook and as a historical document, it will be void of the power that is present there for the word is alive and active and it becomes alive and active when by faith We open our hearts and our minds and our spirits and we go, God, thank you for your word. I know that I don't have all the archaeological history and the background and the ability to research it all, but I do know this. There's been enough credible evidence through history. There's enough factual reliability, and I believe it's personally applicable. And so I'm going to pray and I'm going to receive this into my life today. And we start to pray over scriptures. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And we start going, that means God is with me no matter what I go through. Friends, that's when it all comes together. So what does this mean for those who have doubts? It means the way you begin your journey, can the Bible be trusted, you step out in faith. Because I can give you all the documents, and we'll talk about that on Wednesday. We can go back and research all through history and give you the fragments of the parchments and show you all throughout the recorded history 
how it all comes together and it can be trusted. But the reality is, it's still a leap of faith. You still have to choose to say, yes, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. He is the son of the living God, that he came, he lived, he died, he shed his blood for me, he was raised by the power of God back to life so that I could have a relationship with my heavenly father. It's not about the when and the how, it's about the who and the why. And the who and the why is these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that, friends, is what this is all about. Would you pray with me? So, Father, this morning, we offer this prayer to you, and particularly those of us maybe that have a few more doubts than others. And I ask that in the middle of our searching and the tough questions and the doubts that we have, that we would recognize and be honest with them and realize that there are ways to investigate and ask tough questions, and you welcome those. But then there also comes a moment where in our life we realize you can continue to raise barriers, and yet the fundamental question comes back to, am I willing to trust the Bible? And we know just by the statistics alone how many around this world have already made that decision. But that decision does not impact the individual personal life. It's still up to us to make a choice. So I pray for men and women, young people, young adults that are in the room listening to my voice, those online, the other venues, or maybe by way of broadcast later on. Holy Spirit, would you just remind them that today is their day to say yes. Yes, I believe the Bible is God's word. I have questions, but I believe. And yes, I believe Jesus is who he said he is. And by believing, I now have faith in his name. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.